Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Monday edition of the Athletic Baseball Show, presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. It is Monday, and that means our weekly mailbag with Ken Rosenthal. I'm Tim McMaster. We're recording on Sunday, October 24th. The World Series set. Both league championship series going six games. The Braves got revenge for their 2020 LCS loss to the Dodgers thanks to a monster series from Eddie Rosario. The MVP of that series tied a postseason series record with 14 hits. He drove in nine runs in six games, including the big three-run homer in Game 6 in the American League. The Astros stormed back with three stray wins to knock off the Red Sox. Ken has more on that, the storylines, the skippers, all before we get to the mailbag. If you want to be a part of the conversation next week, it's easy. The phone number is 646-543-7072. You can also email the show, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. If you like the show, rate and review us wherever you listen. That really helps us as we continue to grow the Athletic Baseball Show. Great questions again this week. Here's Ken with the answers and more. Hello, everyone. Hope all is well. I am coming to you from Houston, taping this podcast on Sunday. I actually stayed here after the ALCS because I didn't know exactly where we were going to go, right? The LA Atlanta series was not over. If the Dodgers had won, we would have been going to Los Angeles. And I figured going back to the East and flying to LA or flying back to Houston, eh, I just stayed. So we have a World Series matchup, which is going to be a really good one. And I'm excited to talk about it. And I'm excited to be part of the Fox broadcast team that's going to have this World Series because it's going to be a little bit different than some of the ones we've seen in the past. We've got a team that has not been in the World Series since 1999, the Atlanta Braves. And of course, we have the Astros, the villains, as they are known, even in Houston. Their fans like to tease me and say, Ken, we're the villains. But yes, they are. And years have passed since the sign stealing has taken place, as I've written. The rules have changed. The players have changed. Not all of them. And really, it's a different time in the sport, but people have their feelings. Let's just put it that way. Now, I know baseball is a regional sport, and fans are attached to their teams and often say, ah, why should I watch the World Series? It's not my team, not my broadcasters. I really don't care. And I've always thought, as a baseball fan, if you love the sport, of course you're going to watch the World Series. And what I love about this series and any other, the reason I got into the business, frankly, and the reason so many of us did, the stories, the stories of the people involved. And in this series, we have some very unusual stories. Let's start with the managers. Dusty Baker, 72. Brian Snitker, 66. This will be... The first time two managers 65 or older were in the World Series, and that alone is an amazing feat. 
Both of these men have had incredible baseball lives. Dusty, of course, won the World Series as a player 40 years ago with the Dodgers. He has managed five different teams, the five division titles. I've written about him. I did a an interview with him on Fox that aired before Game 6. He is an amazing person, an amazing renaissance man, one of the most fun people for all of us to cover. And here he is trying finally to get that World Series title. Remember, he has the most wins of any manager that has not won the World Series. Brian Stinker is a little different. Brian Stinker is a baseball lifer, 45 years in the Braves organization, most of that time toiling through the minor leagues, riding those buses, making no money. Got the job, almost lost the job when they had a regime change, or at least it was considered or thought that it would happen. Didn't happen. He actually might have been dismissed if John Coppolella and John Hart had remained in place. But here is the man known as Snit. The players love him, much as the players on the Astros have an abiding, deep respect for Baker. And it's going to be really cool to see him in this series, managing against, by the way, his son, Troy, who is the Astros hitting coach. How about that? Father versus son. Brian's wife, Troy's mother, her name is Ronnie. She is one of the great moms and wives in the game, and she's going to be, well, I'd say pretty much torn about what's going on. We've also got Charlie Morton versus his former team. Charlie Morton, one of the great October stories in recent years. We've got Tyler Matzik, dominant in the NLCS By now, perhaps you know his story. This is a guy who was not in the major leagues from May 2015 to 2020, five years, out of baseball entirely in 2017. He had the yips. He struggled to come back. He played for an independent league team in Texas, the Texas Air Hogs, got released by three different teams, and now he is a dominant pitcher in October. These are the kinds of stories that drive us. Amazing stories. And then the two hitting stars of each ALCS, that would be Jordan Alvarez, and that would be Eddie Rosario. Alvarez right now looks like one of the best hitters in the game, a modern-day Willie McCovey. If you recall, the Astros got him a couple of years ago at the deadline for Josh Fields. At that point, he had not played a professional game for the Dodgers. They had signed him out of Cuba, but they hadn't really thought much of him. He was thought that he was going to be a DH, and it's proven that He can do a little bit more than that. He plays the outfield now, now that he's recovered from his knee surgeries. And my gosh, he is a force at the plate, as the Red Sox learned all too well in the ALCS. And then there's Eddie Rosario, one of numerous pickups by Alex Anthopoulos for the Braves at the trade deadline. He was one who, like Carl Schwarber with the Red Sox, was hurt at the time. Didn't play for a month. What the Braves were doing was just kind of collecting bodies, knowing that, Some wouldn't perform, some might get hurt, and at some point, maybe Eddie Rosario would be a factor. Had a miserable time in Cleveland, where he signed as a free agent after all those years in Minnesota, and now, as Jason Stark has written in The Athletic, he's the greatest player we've ever seen. So that's going to be a lot of fun to watch Rosario and Alvarez, and of course all the other great players on these teams, Altuve and Correa and Freeman, go right down the line. And finally, there is the story of the Astros, and it's a story that we cannot simply ignore. The Astros did what they did. 2017, 2018, stole signs illegally through electronic means. We reported it first in The Athletic. Baseball disciplined them, not to the satisfaction of many fans, but they were disciplined. And here they are these years later, and 
people, as I said earlier, still have very strong feelings about the Astros, people outside of Houston anyway. And as I've written, this is a separate situation we're talking about. Now, it's not entirely separate because, of course, we still have players remaining from the 2017 and 18 teams on the Astros' current roster, still have coaches as well. But it's important to keep in mind that things have changed. There are different rules now in place to prevent electronic sign stealing. There is the possibility through an agreement between MLB and the Players Association that any players involved would be penalized, which they weren't, of course, because they were promised immunity for their honest testimony back when Rob Manfred, the commissioner, conducted his investigation. So it's a different landscape. There are monitors in place now. There are different rules regarding what kinds of video players can watch, or at least the delay that is in place. So what I basically said in my column at the start of the LCS is that, listen, what they are accomplishing now does not redeem them for what they did in 17 and 18. Not a chance. It happened. They did it. It's not something that can simply be swept under the rug and say, oh, let's move on. This is different. They're redeemed. No, they're not redeemed. Sorry. At the same time, what they're accomplishing now is not negated by what happened in 17 and 18. As I said, we're playing under different rules. Presumably, this stuff is not going on. I don't know that we can say that for sure. But it certainly cannot be going on to the same extent that it was with the trash can banging, the use of the replay room in illicit manner. No, there are different things that perhaps are happening now. I don't know. But at the same time, what the Astros have done in their five straight American League Championship Series appearances is shown, has shown, that they're really good. They were really good before they started cheating. They were really good while they were cheating, and they've been really good, presumably, after they cheated. So, again, it's nuanced, it's different, it's separate, and for fans to simply say, ah, they're cheaters, I don't like them, some of them were, yes, that's true, but the vast majority of these players were not on those teams, and as I said, it's just a different landscape entirely. With that, I want to get to your questions. Hey, this is Ken available right now, please leave a voicemail. We've got some really good ones this week, and we will start with Ravi Pandya, who asks, Ken, I just want to say you're killing it on the TV broadcast. No, I didn't write this myself. This is Ravi saying this. All of the other broadcasters are great, but I'd have to say you're consistently the most knowledgeable person on the broadcast. My question is, would you ever want to work in the booth I personally would love that, and I'm sure many other fans would too. Ravi, first of all, thanks for the kind words. Really nice of you to say all that. I'm not sure I agree that I'm consistently the most knowledgeable person on the broadcast. We have a Hall of Famer. We have one of the greatest writers of all time, Tom Verducci. One of the greatest play-by-play men of all time, Joe Buck. The Hall of Famer I mentioned was John Smoltz. But I do appreciate your kind words. Now, as for working in the booth, you might find this an odd answer, but it's no. I don't aspire to do that. In fact, I don't even know that I'm qualified to do that. My knowledge of the sport and the way the game is played is not the same as a former player's. And it's not even the same as, I would say, Tom's. Tom has been an analyst for World Series broadcast, first writer to do that. I'm talking about Tom Verducci. He's been an analyst for MLB Network and for Fox as well during the regular season. Tom played in college. And Tom's knowledge of what goes on in the field is Frankly, the best I've seen of a writer. 
So I don't profess to have that knowledge. I have different areas of where I'm strong at. And those areas are best served, in my opinion at least, as a dugout reporter. Now, I'm not in the dugout. I'm alongside it. But you know what I'm talking about, a field reporter. And I can tell stories there. I can relate how players were acquired. I can do all the things that you see that I do on the broadcast. And again, I just believe that is where I'm best served. And it's not false modesty. It's actually reality. So I appreciate your kind words. And I definitely appreciate you even thinking that I could possibly do that. But I'm not Tom. Buster Olney's done it too, I think, as an analyst on the radio. I'm not Buster. We're all different. Where I am on the field, in the dugout, or alongside the dugout, that is where I belong. All right, next question. Julian Gallardi. What are the likelihood that the Yankees sign Corey Seager? This is a good question. And my friend Joel Sherman wrote a pretty impressive column, or persuasive column, I should say, that Seager, of all the shortstops out there, is perhaps the best fit for the Yankees. Start with the fact that he hits left-handed. The Yankees have been deficient from the left side. They addressed that with Rizzo and Gallo at the deadline. But Gallo is a question. We don't know if he's going to be even on the team next year, even though they have him under their control. He did not succeed. They might want to do something else. They clearly need to address shortstop. So Corey Seager, left-handed power hitter. He fits. He's also a good hitter. Unlike Gallo, who is all or nothing, strikeouts, walks galore. Corey Seager, 306 batting average the past two seasons. He's proven it in the postseason as well. He doesn't strike out as much as some. That is an appealing factor. And as I just mentioned, he's played in the postseason, played in big games, which is important when you're going to play for the New York Yankees. They play in big games a lot. The other thing that's interesting about Seager from the Yankees' perspective is that he's not going to be a shortstop forever. He's a huge guy. If a fan could see him up close and in person, I think that fan would be shocked to see how big a person Corey Seager is. He reminds me, in that sense, of Cal Ripken Jr. So, ultimately, he probably is going to move off of shortstop. And for the Yankees, that's okay. Because two of their best prospects, maybe their two best, are shortstops. Oswald Peraza, Anthony Volpe. So, those two guys, they're coming. And at some point, Corey Seager can move to third or that would be the spot. Third base would be the spot. So, yeah, I like Corey Seager as a Yankee. I like the idea. It depends, obviously, on how much money they're going to be willing to spend, and I don't necessarily know the answer to that. Next question comes from Jake in Houston. Jake says he loves the show. Given all the questions raised recently about umpiring, what do you think the league can do to appease teams and fans that doesn't directly conflict with the umpire's union? I was thinking some form of system where both managers prior to the beginning of a playoff series meet with each other and agree on a set of umpires, or at least very specifically, the plate umpire that will officiate during the series. The logistics might be complicated, but I like the idea of both managers conferring with each other so that both are happy with who the home plate umpire is. Thank you. This is an interesting idea, Jake. I could just see the managers like having a an umpire draft like we do almost in fantasy league, right? I want this guy. You get that guy. That's not ever going to happen. Now, we've had a number of controversial calls in the postseason, a number of times where people have asked, why is uh, Laz Diaz behind the play? Why is that umpire here? Whoa, where are the best umpires? And I asked MLB at some point, 
after the check swing with Wilmer Flores, what is going on here? How are these guys assessed? Why are we not seeing the best, etc.? The answer I got from MLB, and you're not going to be happy with it, but don't shoot the messenger, is that this is indeed a merit-based situation, the way postseason umpires are chosen. A number of performance factors go into it, including overall performance by an umpire, pitch accuracy metrics. Yes, I know pitch accuracy metrics on some umpires in the postseason were rather low. Also, situation handling on and off the field and even performance from previous seasons is a factor. I did not know that. So it is merit-based. It is a selection process that is done in that way. Now, one complaint I've heard, and this is a fair one. So if umpire X is an extremely good plate umpire, and umpire Y might make the cut for the postseason, but is not as good behind the plate. He is doing well in the other aspects that I just mentioned. Why are we not going with the best plate umpires? Why are we rotating? Fair question. If you've got somebody who's a great plate umpire, I want that guy behind the plate. Now, he can't be behind the plate every game. It's not how umpiring works. They rotate throughout the season. It's too stressful, too difficult physically. But in my view, baseball needs to do a better job weeding out the best plate umpires. You still make it performance-based, but you take the, I don't know, five or six best plate umpires, and those guys are the plate umpires. And you figure it out, you rotate them, you do it that way, it can work. And that is an adjustment that I would like to see the sport make. All right, next question. Jim Medlock says, Hi, I have been very disappointed in the lack of scrutiny of the Colorado Rockies' decision to promote Bill Schmidt into the GM from within without even interviewing candidates from outside the organization. They should have at least talked to candidates outside the organization to get an outside assessment of the Rockies' personnel and ideas for improvements. The Colorado Rockies will continue to be the same old, same old disappointments. Jim, I don't know if you recall, but before the season started, Nick Groke and I wrote a story about the Rockies and about their management. And at the time, Breidich was the general manager, Jeff Breidich. And one of the things we addressed was that they are one of these organizations that is rather insular. They don't go outside for the most part. They are a team that likes their own people. Now, that can be good because it fosters stability and a lot of organizations are lacking that stability. I look at the Mets, for example, right now. They've had all these different GMs running through, even though Alderson's been there. So that is a positive, stability. But at the same time, when you're not a winning organization, and you've had issues in the recent times with putting a good competitive team on the field, it certainly would behoove a team to go outside. Now, Bill Schmidt has been there forever. He was their scouting director. He's very much respected within the sport. He is someone who is just hardcore baseball, and I mean that in the best possible way. Bill Schmidt might do a very good job. And Bill Schmidt is someone who can maybe fix that culture a little bit. That's something they need. It was not great communication under Breidich. Schmidt is well-respected within an organization, and he knows the importance of getting everyone on the same page and pushing forward together. Is Bill Schmidt the best possible GM candidate? I don't know that. Should they have interviewed the, on the outside? Absolutely they should have. They should have conducted a massive search and try to figure out, all right, who's the best person for this job? Plenty of people want to be GMs in baseball right now. Plenty of young, talented people. Plenty of older people who can still do the job. So I agree with you. 
But that said, I don't want to be disrespectful to Bill Schmidt and what he has accomplished in his career, who he is, and what he might be as a GM. I am not ruling out that he will be a really good GM. There's certainly that possibility. Next question comes from Dan Z in Ohio. Dan asks, much has been said about all the bullpen usage and lack of starting pitching in the playoffs. My question is, how much of that is ripple effects from the shortened 2020 season? We talk about long seasons for postseason pitchers, even without that factor. Dan, excellent point. And certainly, the shortened 2020 season and the ramp up from 60 to 162 games this season and then a full postseason, that has been a concern all year. We've talked about this at various points on the podcast. That said, the trend in the game has been toward bullpenning. And that's the word Brian Kenny on MLB Network coined years ago to describe using relievers in this fashion aggressively. And it's a concept that has taken hold in part because, yeah, it's difficult to find starting pitchers who are capable of going six, seven innings. One problem with that is the sport doesn't develop those pitchers anymore because we've gotten into this trend. So while the shortened season last year certainly was a contributing factor, I don't believe that that is the main factor. It's a trend in the game, and it's a trend that needs to stop. And I'm going to be writing about this, hopefully, at some point soon, just some ideas to bring back starting pitching. Because with all due respect to some of the great relievers we're seeing in the postseason, a number of teams have a lot of relievers who are essentially faceless to the general public. And it's not to dismiss what they're doing. They're really good pitchers in the major leagues. But... What fans, in my view, like to see is, for instance, what we saw in 2019 at the end of the World Series. What did we see? Strasburg and Scherzer for the Nationals, Verlander and Greinke for the Astros. Great starting pitching matchups. It's part of the appeal of this sport when you see that. The Braves have that going into this postseason. The Astros seem to have found it with Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia, even though they're without McCullers Jr. and Verlander. So... It's a really important point to get starting pitching back, and I think it's something that the sport needs to address. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Finally, Jake from Houston asks, I've been considering lately, why is it that everything before the World Series, the playoff rounds, are limited exclusively to cable? I know there's too many games to put all of them on network TV, 
but surely most postseason games could be more accessible to the general public than just the four to seven World Series games. Big fan of the show. Jake, this is a question best put to Major League Baseball because ultimately Major League Baseball controls how the sport is presented. The different networks bid for the rights and in making the decision to accept those bids or reject them, baseball can say we want the games on network TV, not cable TV. Now, in this day and age, there's not as much of a distinction as there was years ago. And certainly... Fans are able to find the games. The one problem I have is we jump all over the place a little bit. Fox does this too. Fox, FS1, and it's sometimes difficult for fans to know exactly where the games are, but fans generally find them. The games generally are accessible. I know there's sometimes or some issues where you might be in a spot where maybe you don't have TBS or you don't have FS1, whatever the case might be. But ultimately, if baseball wanted the games on network TV, they would go about having their packages done that way. I do know when FS1 was created, part of the thinking Fox executives had was, well, listen, we're creating this different network. We want to promote it, and we want to put the Division Series and League Championship Series on it to kind of help build the network. And that was certainly their goal. And again, baseball could have said, well, no, we don't want that. We want you to do it this way. But Fox obviously paid them enough money to where... They could do essentially whatever they wanted. So that's where it is. I don't know that this is a big as, as big an issue as it would have been, I don't know, however many years ago. But getting the game to the most fans is what you're talking about, and that's certainly something that is always in the sport's interest. I just don't think it's as acute a situation as it has been in the past. Great stuff from Ken. Great stuff from you, the listener, for asking the questions. Thanks for joining us for the Monday Mailbag. If you want to be part of the show next week, you can. You just call us. That's what we like the best, 646-543-7072, or email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Keep it locked on to the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. On Tuesday, it's Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. They'll help get you ready for game number one on Tuesday night. Great guests coming there on Wednesday. Andy McCullough continues his check-in with athletic beat writers as the series rolls on. On Thursday, it's the Baseball Barista with Grant Brisby and Hunter Pence. And then Friday, Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. Five days of content per week through October in the postseason. Also, for actual daily game reaction, we have you covered there, too. Check out Rates and Barrels. That's Derek Van Riper, Eno Saris, and Britt Giroli. They're coming to you on that feed Monday through Friday mornings throughout the postseason. Check out that one as well. If you want to read all the great writers working at The Athletic, whether it's baseball or another sport, you can save right now. You can subscribe for 50% off. You go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. We'll talk to you again next week.